Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. I just kind of want to say right up front, if I sound a little bit subdued or, or, or quiet today, it, it's not because I'm tired, because I stayed up late watching A&M make bacon out of those hogs in Arkansas. That, that, that's not why, why it is. A- actually, I don't know if you've noticed, I've been hoarse now for about six weeks, and it's, it's not getting better. It's kind of still getting worse. So my attempt this week was to, to only talk when I'm preaching. I think I got about a D minus uh, on that. So, but I am trying to kind of, even when I'm preaching, contain it a little bit. I hope I don't appear unexcited or uninvolved. If I doze off during the message, just wake me up and uh, I'll, I'll get back with it. But I, I honestly, I do hope you'll, uh, I want to ask for you to pray for me. It has really become a, an issue and I'm going to see if I can get through it and get it healed without having to stop Preaching. Oh, gosh, I don't want to do that. So uh, appreciate your prayers for me on that. Well, it was in the uh, 19, mid-1980s. Uh, I was a student at Texas A&M, and I had a chance to go hear a lady. It was uh, in a debate forum by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare. Does that name ring a bell for any of y'all? She was the founder of the American Atheist, and, and I guess would be considered kind of the very first atheist activist. And uh, boy, she was a pistol. Any of y'all remember her? I mean, she was just something to, to watch and to see. As a matter of fact, in 1964, 20 years before that, Life magazine called her the most hated woman in America. And then if you fast forward over 30 years later to the mid-90s, that must have still been true because I think almost at the age of 80 years old, she was assassinated. I mean, who, who assassinates an, an elderly woman like that? But, but she was. She was, uh, she was something else to watch. And, and, to, and to see her in a debate, I, I think the way she took on a debate, kind of her strategy, was to act somewhat like a rabid dog. Uh, that's kind of how she, you know, I'm going to paralyze my opponent. I'm going to confuse my opponent. And, and you'd watch her and she would spit she would cuss, she would yell and holler and make all these outlandish statements. Some of them didn't even have anything to do with the topic or the debate. So, I mean, when you watched her, when you listened to her, I mean, you really did. It was like, God, I mean, you're just kind of in awe. I don't know if that's the right word to use. It was just, it was just something to wind her up and see her go. Well, it was in the midst of that kind of thing happening and I don't remember the exact topic of the debate or even who she was debating, but it, it was about God. And, and she kind of looks to the crowd and says, why would you, Chris, of course, she doesn't believe there's a God, right? Why would you Christians make up a God who hates sex? Why, why would you make up a, a God who, who kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden because they had sex? Now, that should, that should raise a flag for you, Right? But you shouldn't, aren't you thinking, well, that's not why they got lost the garden. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I was more stunned by that blatant lie that she said to a, I don't know what the crowd was that day. It was a huge room. I mean, I was imagining there was a couple thousand people there. I, I don't know if I was more surprised that, that she just made that blatant lie or that nobody corrected it. Not, not one person challenged or corrected, not, not the person she was debating or, or anybody else. And I'm thinking, hey, could we, just, could we just turn to Genesis 3 and clear this, clear this up? But, but you know, I don't think it made any difference. N- not then or now. 
would it have made any difference if we'd have cleared up what the real issue, what the real reason was? Because the, the fact is, what she was playing on was a very populist idea, then and now, that, that God is against sex. God, God is against sex, and he is against you enjoying or experiencing any kind of love that, that might be found in that. Well, we're continuing today our, our series called Can I? Uh, if you weren't here last week, we're looking at a variety of issues. You can probably already guess what today's is. And uh, I think next week we're going to look at Can I Carry a Gun? Might be an interesting topic. And then uh, we're going to look at drinking the week after that. So a bunch of dicey things coming up. And uh, today, though, the issue is, can I? Can, can I? can I develop my own sexuality? Can I develop my own sexual ideas, my own sexual standards? And, you know, when you think about it, to ask that question today, doesn't it almost kind of sound silly? I mean, it's like, is, any, is anybody having this discussion? Of, of course you can. I mean, right, right to privacy, right to my body, and, and maybe the biggest one of all, my feelings. I mean, America, my feelings are the source of truth and, and the source of guidance. And this kind of way we're approaching this has kind of led us to a place where anything goes today, doesn't it? I mean, there's really very little that is outside the lines. I mean, I think... I think we're mostly against sex with animals. I, I think we're mostly against sex with children. I think we're mostly against rape. I said mostly. I wouldn't say entirely. But I think mostly as a culture, we would say, yeah, those, those things probably not. But outside of two or three things, what else would be a boundary? I mean, we, we have almost no boundaries now. There's almost nowhere that we wouldn't go. And what this has led to now, folks, is, a, is really, as a society, an entire abandoning of God. I don't know if you've ever seen those two things put together. I mean, we, we talk all the time. Oh, are you, America's abandoning God. We're not following God anymore. We don't pray in school, all these kinds of things. And we probably have a lot of different ideas. Would it ever cross your mind that maybe our pursuit of sex is the reason, the lead reason that we're abandoning God? I, I, I'll see if I can come back in a little bit with a passage and maybe connect the dots there a little bit but you know it's really a very simple idea if I get rid of the designer then I can design my own thing right if I get rid of him then I'm the designer I can set my own rules I can I can do my own thing it helps me worship at the altar of my, of my feelings now before we give society kind of a bad rap on on thinking so lowly of our God you know there is kind of a reason they would think God's against sex right I mean, you really can open the Bible and find a whole basket full of no. Can't you? I mean, no, 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 no. And so, yeah, they kind of, hey, man, God's really against sex. Everything God has to say about sex is, is no. Well, yeah, that's true. There is a lot of no. Let me think about some of the things he says no to. He, he says no to sex that betrays my mate. He says no to that. He, he, I might be single, but he says no to me of having sex with a, a married person. He says, hey, listen, let's, no sex in the family, all right? 
Not with your relations and, and all that. It, you'll, you'll notice it says chapter 18, verse 6 and, fo- and following. There's actually about 10 verses after verse 6 that kind of put together every single combination of a family, family member, even blended families. And it, no, no, no. I mean, all these different combinations of family. And I mean, 10 verses. No, no, not that combination, not that combination. No to all those combinations. He, you know, he says no to, to sex with the same gender. He says no to, to sex with animals. Now, you know, you'll, you'll notice in, in my verses, and I hope, you're, I hope you're writing these down today, I really believe on this issue. We really do need to become somewhat fluent on what the Bible is saying and where I can go and find these things and, and prove these things. But you'll notice I got a whole lot of Leviticus up there, don't, you, don't I? And there's other on all these things. I'm not listing all the verses on every one of these issues, just one or two. But I, I, I do a whole lot of Leviticus, and I'm kind of doing that because I'm a, I'm a smart aleck. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard or listened. When the, when the world comes and tries to engage us on our turf, you know, okay, let's, let's talk about what the Bible says. And, and they'll come and they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll show all the places that you and I quote Leviticus because apparently if it's from Leviticus, you can just throw it away. I mean, come on, really, who quotes Leviticus as a source of information? Now, why we're saying that, and, and that argument is usually brought up when we're talking about homosexuality, and I would point out two things. One, Leviticus is not the only place in Scripture that addresses homosexuality, and two, well, yeah, Leviticus does say no to homosexuality. It also says no to sex with our relatives and sex with animals. Do we throw these two things out also because of the silliness of Leviticus? I mean, who's following Leviticus today? Now, there, there is a reason that they kind of bash Leviticus. And they, the reason they do that is they point to you and me and our hypocrisy. Because as we would maybe go to Leviticus to say, you know, I'm pretty sure God's got to know for homosexuality, and they say, oh yeah, are you quoting Leviticus? While you eat shrimp, you hypocrite. Say, well, what, do we, what do you mean? Why are we talking about shrimp? Because Leviticus says not to eat shrimp. And so see, there, there's the evidence as you and I are chowing down on our shrimp cocktails calling homosexuality wrong, that, that we're hypocrites. We just kind of pick and choose the verses we want, the verses we like to beat other people up with, the, the verses we're going to ignore, because after all, I, I do like shrimp. And so I say, look at, look at your hypocrisy. Well, part of what's going on there, folks, and I imagine some of you may have heard this, maybe even been in a little bit of a dialogue or a discussion about this. As we come to Leviticus, and Leviticus is not the only book, it's, it's the first five books of the Bible that we refer to as the law. That, that, that's the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the bulk of the law is communicated in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And what you get, I mean, there's one word, the law. I mean, there's just one title, one heading there. But under the law are a variety of laws. And you can break them into categories. For instance, you've got the ceremonial law. And this is going to be law guiding things like sacrifices. As a matter of fact, the biggest portion of Leviticus is about what animals you sacrifice, for what sins, when you do it. I mean, in tremendous detail. It's kind of a bloody book, to be honest with you. So a lot of it is about that kind. There's temple law. There's the, the law of the priest. So all of that kind of falls under this ceremonial law. Also in Leviticus, you have a dietary law. 
For Jews, there was food that was clean and unclean. And unclean meant, no, you can't eat that. And shrimp was not the only thing. It was one of those things in that category. And then you also have in Leviticus, and this is probably what most of us think when we think of the law, you have the moral law. And under the moral law, you got the thou shalt nots, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the the moral law. Well, as we come into the New Testament, folks, you and I have got some tremendous news. We, now you got to understand the bad news before you understand the good news, right? And here's the bad news. You have failed at the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying uh, you're you're just not good enough. No, I'm saying you're a total abysmal failure at the law. You have broken all ten commandments. You have broken all ten commandments more times than you can. Now, if you're like me, you're going, I think there's two or three I didn't break. You have broken, I have broken all ten more times than we can count. You are so incredibly not like God. You are so incredibly not like his character, not like his heaven. You, I, have failed at the law. And here's the good news. While you and I flunked that test, Jesus passed it for us. Here's some good news. Jesus went in, he took the test for you and me, and at the top and right-hand corner, he wrote Jesus Christ and Randy Hahn. Somehow I get in on his test and I get a hundred and I'm sailing right into heaven on that test right there. I am under Christ. I am, I'm getting excited, aren't I? I'm going to lose my voice. I actually squeak in the third service. It's something to come in here. But uh, I get to come in on his test. So not only is the New Testament announcing to you and me this good news that we can be rescued from our failure. But then it's also starting to define, well, then what is my relationship to the law? What is my relationship with all this big hunk of the Old Testament called the law? And a lot of the New Testament is specifically addressing that. This is what a big part of Romans is about, especially Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. This is what Galatians is about, Hebrews. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the twin brother to Leviticus. They go hand in hand. To understand Hebrews, you've got to understand Leviticus. And what Leviticus is doing is just walking through saying, okay, now that you're under Christ, you're living on his test, what's your relationship to the law? And so Hebrews begins to dismiss for us a lot of the ceremonial law. Why do I need all the law about the sacrifices? I'm not, I'm not going to go through a lot of sacrifices for all my different sins and different times and different reasons. I'm up under the sacrifice of Christ. I live in faith of one great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, on the cross for me. So see, there's a whole lot of that that's not wrongly, it's just rightly, it's fulfilled. So it's set aside. All the, the law about the priesthood and the temple. Hey, I, I am the temple now. Holy Spirit living in me. So see, that law all, all changes. And Jesus, in the Gospels, actually sets aside the dietary law. He says that that's, that's not a part of your worship. It's not a part of how you're going to relate with God. And he says, all foods are clean. 
so I can eat shrimp. And can we just praise God for that? I mean, there's, I'm not the only shrimp lover in here, am I? Thank, thank you, Jesus, for giving shrimp back. Amen. Okay. And so, he, so that's what the New Testament's doing. It's defining, shaping, directing. But what about the moral law? Well, folks, here's the interesting. While the, the scripture is, is showing the fulfillment and the setting aside of all of these different laws in the Old Testament, when it comes to the moral law, it not only doesn't set aside, it actually repeats every bit of the moral law for you and me in the New Testament. Because that's still right and good, right? Because I'm under grace, God's not, hey, just kill everybody now. Hey, sleep with anybody you want since you're under grace now, since you're, since you're relying on Christ's test. As a matter of fact, listen to Jesus address the moral law. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what he just said is, assume I'm Jesus and you're a room full of Jews. Okay, guys, we all know the law, right? We all know the Ten Commandments. We know the law. We know it says, you know, you can't commit adultery. And and that's still true today. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. That is profound Because while all this other law is being fulfilled and set aside, it's like this when he kind of turbocharges it, right? He kind of ups the ante on. And it's not just adultery. There's actually six passages in Matthew chapter 5 that start off with this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall not even, remember, hate so it's like God is it's like Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you understand you've got to control the outward you. you, you there, there's some things that outwardly you just cannot do to, to live in a right and a good relationship with God. But I want to tell you something. It's not just about outward conformity. God cares about what's going on in here too. The heart, the thoughts. Folks, this is a profound statement in light of where we are as a culture today where we say my thoughts and feelings are God. My thoughts and feelings are what I obey. And Jesus, no, 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 no. Your thoughts and feelings need to be brought under submission to God's revealed will. Your your thoughts and feelings need to be given over to God also. So I'd say there's a pretty good insight as to what God thinks about the moral law. So I'm not being a hypocrite when I eat shrimp and say, hey, there's all these no's here. Now, the funny thing is, if the world really knew what it was doing, it would just figure out some other reasons to call us hypocrites, because we all are, aren't we? Oh, I love the Bible and believe the Bible. I'll try to hit about 10% of it this week. Right? I mean, we're all hypocrites. Yeah, we do struggle with that. We struggle with saying, hey, I believe this, but... What happens? See, it's not just a problem out there. It it, it goes on in here too. Our feelings kind of can overwhelm us and all of a sudden I'm giving in to this temptation. I'm letting this emotion kind of run wild. We're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. So God, yeah, he has some no's. Two others that God says no to. He says no to sexual immorality. Now, I'm being a bit repetitive here. Because sexual immorality kind of wraps up the other five things on the other page we just looked at. So why did I put sexual immorality there? Because some of us right now are thinking, well, he didn't list that. He didn't say anything about that. Okay, well, this is my catch-all. 
This one right here does it. This word in the Greek language, and I'm not giving you a Bible lesson. I'm just simply talking about the definition of the word in the Greek language. This word right here, sexual immorality in the Greek language is the word pornea. Guess what word we get from that? Pornography. This word, by the Greek language, this is the way they used it, was any idea, any, any idea that deviated from the standard of, one sec, uh, of sex between one man and one woman in marriage. Anything, any, any thought, anything by myself, anything with another, anything with others. I mean, really, just anything that I might go to, that I might run to, that I might find myself in, that is outside of the commitment of one man, one woman in marriage, would be enveloped by this word sexual immorality. So God says, yeah, he says no to anything outside of that. Now, I hope you're, like I said, writing these passages down. But, but folks, if you walked away with two passages today, let, let it be these two. Write those down. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, and here's why I think these two are particularly important. Because these are doing more than saying no to something. A lot of these passages are very clear. No to that, no to that. No, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 no. Okay? These two passages are about a little bit more than no. They kind of get into the why. Why is God saying no? Is he mean? Does he not want me to feel good? Does he not want me to enjoy pleasure the way I like to enjoy pleasure? Why does God say no? And, and I, I'm not going to go into both of these passages. That's why I'm begging, pleading, please go home and read them and, and study them yourself. I do want to read a little piece of one of them, the First Thessalonians passage, beginning in verse 3. It says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what God wants. This is what God dreams about. This is what God is working toward. You being holy. Everywhere he says yes, everywhere he says no, it's about you becoming holy. What's holy? It's what is distinct from everything else in the sense of its beauty, in the sense of its truth, in the sense of its justice, in the sense of its goodness. This is God's desire. This is what he's working toward and building toward in, in you and me. This is God's will. Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now I find that interesting there that he pulls one sin out of the list. I mean folks, lying makes me unholy. Gossiping makes me unholy. Being greedy makes me unholy. I mean, why didn't God say, hey, this is my will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sin? I mean, that would have worked, right? Why, why not just one word that covers all of them? And, and I don't think it's God's intent to exclude all the others because we got other passages that do that. But I think the reason he pulls one out here and he makes it sexual immorality is because he says, hey, listen, I want you to be holy. And if that's going to happen, we got to get a hold of this sexual issue. And I think he pulls a sin out that sweeps the room. You know, I think why sometimes maybe we get a little ramped up and amped up about homosexuality and transgender. Because it's a chance to take the spotlight off of me and just put it on that group over there. I mean, it's just always easier to see what somebody else is doing wrong, Right? And that is a pretty small group of people. So let's just, let's just go after the small group of people and just leave the rest of us alone. I think when he says sexual immorality, it just, 
kind of brings all of us into the issue. Different places, different times, different reasons, different depths of the issue and the problem, but we're all there. We're all there. And so he says, hey, listen, man, I want you to be, I want you to be holy. I want you to be like me. I want you to be like my heaven. And that means true and, 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 and faithful and good and, and pure. This is, this is what I want for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Listen to this, that each of you know how to control his own body. This was written in the first century, and it absolutely speaks to where we are in the 21st century, doesn't it? Because, see, I live in a culture that tells me my body is God. Whatever my body tells me is, whatever my body wants, whatever my body feels, I'm, I'm to obey that. I am to act on that. God says, no, 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 no. Bring your body. Bring your body in control. Let your body be how you pursue holiness and honor. Listen to this. Not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. See, this issue can actually make us Act like there is no God. And that's why I made the statement I did earlier. You know, folks, obviously, I think a lot of us historically would kind of agree with the statement that in the 1960s, we kind of took a turn, didn't we? Now, just to be clear, sin happened before the 1960s. Right, okay. The, The 1960s did not introduce sin and did not introduce sexual sin. I believe the Bible. Nothing new under the sun. But as a culture, we started removing barriers. As a culture, we, we started removing the out of bounds. And, and we go back to the 60s. And what you will find tracking with that is our removal of God from life. Remove the designer. Remove the one who sets the boundaries. And, and, and then I can set them. And it'll all work out. It'll all be right and good. Which is interesting because God also has a no to taking cues from the sexual cues from the culture. He actually addresses that. No, you don't look at Red Book to figure out what's right sexually. You don't, you, don't go to, you don't go to school for that. You don't go to Hollywood for that. You don't listen to what all your friends... He, I mean, God actually, it's amazing. This was written 3,000 years ago. And it addresses exactly where we are right now. No, you don't take your ideas, you don't develop your definitions, you don't draw your lines based on what culture and society around you say on the issue of sexuality. So yeah, there's a whole lot of no in there. A whole lot of no. Ah, but wait, we're not done. There's a yes. There's a huge yes. There's a very wonderful, profound yes. God says yes to sex between one man and one woman in marriage. And here's what I love. More verses than this, but he puts it in Genesis 2. You say, well, why do you love that it's in Genesis 2? It's like the second page of the Bible. I mean, look, folks, if you got your Bible, just thumb through it. Look, there's a ton of words in there, isn't there? This is a huge book. And on page 2, he's establishing you're a sexual being. I made you that way. And there's going to be something really here to enjoy and to celebrate and to live. And this is the relationship that's going to happen in. Folks, God draws that line and lays it out there on page two of the Bible. There's a profound yes for that. And there is a yes for the purposes of pleasure. Okay, God doesn't get squeamish. He doesn't get shy. He doesn't blush. He made this for pleasure. Again, a variety of passages. Let me read one. It's not going to be, by the way, from the Song of Solomon, because that's just rated R. 
I mean, it, it, it is rated R. If you read the Song of Solomon and you understand symbolism and you understand poetry, then you're going to read that and go, holy cow, that's not appropriate. What, what are you saying, God? That's just, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, if I can ever find it, holy cow, there it is. Uh, I, I want to read, it's just PG-13, Okay. When God says you shall not lie, we say, that's God speaking, right? When you should love one another, that's God speaking, right? Okay, folks, this is God speaking. This is Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain... Now, I'm, I'm picking up in the middle of a passage. It is poetic, and so you've got to understand the symbolism. Fountain is basically referring to... Are we ready? If you've got a four-year-old, put your finger in there. It's all the sexual organs, all the sexual pieces. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice... Rejoice, get excited, celebrate in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Guys think, hey, I made sexual pieces. They're going to be a lot of fun. Enjoy it. And I'm thinking, shoot, I thought it was the devil that gave us that stuff. <laughs> no, that's God. God did that. L- l- one more verse. Be intoxicated always in her love. To my knowledge, that's the only place in the Bible that intoxicated is used positively. And I'm pretty sure what God is saying there is, Randy, I want you to be knee-walking drunk in romantic sexual love for your mate. That's what God, God's word says that too, Madeline Murray O'Hare. That's a big wampum yes, isn't it? Yeah, in a place. Yeah, he's got boundaries. He's got a place. But boy, in that place, there's a big, there's a big yes. Yes to procreation. I don't think that shocks or surprises. Boy, I got really excited on that one, didn't I? <laughs> Man. Okay, uh, for protection. You know what this is addressing? The world you and I live in. It's a dangerous sexual world out there. It is a totally sex-saturated desire, uh, society for the purpose of your destruction. And God knows that. God knows what's going on, what's happening. And he says, hey, listen, you need to build a healthy, effective, faithful sex life in your marriage. That is a form of protection as you head out into that world every day. And then he even says, I mean, this is crazy, even for comfort. I mean, this is after David and Bathsheba have a baby die. I mean, what... what that's got to be like one of the super low moments that a human being can experience. And right after the loss of that child, it says that David went into Bathsheba and he comforted her. He said, well, how do you know that means sex? Because the next verse said she got pregnant. Do the math. <laughs> right? For comfort. So see, folks, there's a lot of yes. Here's the bottom line. God says no to the lie. To the destruction. God says yes to what will bless you, to what will bless the other, and to what will bless society. Yes and no, all of it for our well-being and our good. Now, now folks, gosh, one message. I mean, next week we're on to another topic. One message on sex. I mean, that's really, that's a lot to, to take on in, in one message. I mean, there's so many. Hey, listen, there's verses and we could do a Bible study today on same sex. We could do a Bible study today. Did you know the Bible actually addresses transgender and cross-dressing? Something I we, we could do a study on that. We, lust, 
I mean, you know, for like the one or two people in here that struggle with that, we, we could talk about lust. We could talk about the multiplicity of our partners throughout life and how that builds and impacts in our lives. I mean, I mean there's all this variety of things we could have talked about and, and obviously not going to hit all that in one message. But you know, there's also kind of a, maybe a simplicity And I'm not saying it's simple, it's very complex. But there is perhaps a simplicity in a way that we approach all of those things as they're being dealt in our culture today. And and let me go back to something I've already said. We worship at the altar of our feelings. I mean, really, the whole entire issue comes down to, am I going to trust my feelings or am I going to trust God's word? And, and like I said, we live in a culture that says, hey, listen, your feelings, what, you, what your body feels, that's your truth, that's your direction. So if, if, if my feeling is that I would have more worth, I would have more value, I would, I would experience love better with the same sex, then that's my truth. Or if, you know, I think my body got messed up and really I'm something else, that's what I feel inside, then that's my truth. Or if I feel like, you know, what just would feel good and help me get through a hard world is to have sex with everyone who will say yes, then, that, then that's my truth. And we worship at that altar. We worship. And because we worship at that altar, the greatest sin at that altar is to deny somebody their feelings, Right? To tell somebody that their, their feelings are wrong. And this is what you and I are being confronted with in the workplace, in school, and among friends. Because you and I are maybe attempting to say that something is wrong. And they look at, you know, what kind of mean, hateful person are you? I mean, wh- why does somebody else have to experience love like you experience love? Isn't that just a tad self-centered Isn't that just a tad insensitive that that they've got to feel sexually and identify in in the way you've found? And I think a lot of us are standing there going, like a deer in headlights, ah, yeah, I guess I do kind of sound mean and insensitive. Hey, God, are we really that mean and insensitive? But, But wait a minute. Don't we have to back up and ask, is the presupposition of worshiping our feelings actually true? Is there no place that our feelings are to be checked or to be blocked? Hey, listen, you want to know something that that drives us and identifies us as much as sex? Just as powerful an emotion? Our anger. As a matter of fact, there are people in this room right now that if we could miraculously reach in and take out your anger, you think, what a relief. It wouldn't be for you. Your energy for living life comes from your anger. You have become so addicted to that hurt, so addicted to that failure, that betrayal. Your anger in that is what gives total definition to your life. It's how you look at people. It's how you understand situations. It's how you make decisions. I mean, it is every bit the identifier that sexuality can be. Well, if that's me then wouldn't I have the same right? Hey, listen, anger, anger is my worth. Anger is my value, my direction. So I tell you what I need to do. I need to kill you. Now, is society going to be okay with that? Is is society going to give me a bit? Hey, if that's your feelings, we got to honor and respect that. What if my worth and my value comes from something you have? Can I lie about you so that you lose that position? Can I steal from you so that, I mean, we're talking about my worth. As a person, my value as a person, certainly anything it takes for me to get that 
you're going to honor and respect. Now, I understand if you and I were to say this, what are they going to say back? Oh, that's stupid. That's not the same. Why is it not the same thing? Instead of always us being back on our heels trying to explain that. No, you, you explain to me. Why is it different? Folks, here's, here's the truth. This might sound crazy. It's absolutely normal to think something wrong. Say, what, what did he? Yeah, it is totally normal for you to have feelings and thoughts and ideas that are not right. That need to be checked. Feeling something does not make it truth. Feeling something is not a mandate to act on it. We have all kinds of feelings that need to be checked, that need to be corrected, that can't be expressed. There's not something morally wrong with you to say, I don't think that feeling is something we should act on. No, we, we, we have to bring some into check. And, and so folks, really this whole issue, again, I'm taking something pretty complex and trying to make it simple, but it really can't. Here's how I live life. Here's how we need to handle this. Here's how we need to live. We're constantly evaluating, hey, are my feelings going to lead me in the right direction here? Are my feelings trustworthy or do I need to follow God and his word? And I would encourage you not to go by some mumbo jumbo spiritual, what the preacher said. I would ask you to use science, use evidence, I mean, folks, what led us to rampant sexual, sexually transmitted diseases? Was it following God's word that led us to that? Was it following God's word that brought us that into the world? Was it following God's word that led us to millions of little girls being sold into the sex trade? All over this world and Richmond, Virginia being considered one of the human trafficking capitals in the United States. Was it God's word and seeking to trust and follow that 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 brought that to us? Was it God's word seeking to follow that that brought us rampant divorce and abortion due to sexual immorality? Did, Did God's word do that in our lives? Was it following God's word that brought us to a place today in the United States in our new evolved Freedom and sexual understanding to a place that most surveys, most psychological studies say we are more sexually dissatisfied today than we've ever been since that kind of thing was measured. We are more afraid of intimacy today than we've ever been. Is it our new sexual freedom and our feelings and our culture that brought us that? Or is it God's word? Folks, follow the evidence. God's word has a really surprising batting average. It bats a thousand. So it really comes down to every frustration. And obviously what I'm talking about here is a little bit more than just a sexual issue. But whatever the temptation, whatever the sexual issue, what am I going to follow here? Is it my feelings or is it God's word? And, And let me say, if you're here today and you're struggling with the same sex attraction... You're you're, you're struggling with a gender identity. You're you're, you're struggling with lust. You're you're struggling with some other kind of sexual addiction. Man, I'll tell you what, when you're trying to be a follower of Christ, that is so overwhelming. It is so defeating. And it is so guilt-ridden. You know what happens? It's just easier to give in. 
It's just easier to stop fighting it. It's easier to stop coming to church. It's easier to stop believing in God. It's easier, 100% easier to just go with it. And guess what? When you do, it feels good. I mean, it, it really does. You will think, I have just landed on what I need for happiness. I have just landed on what I need to be who I am for a moment. The poison will 100% of the time bite. So I just want you to know, I, I don't think that a, a preacher saying, trust God's word and not your feelings, solves your problem. Oh gosh, why didn't anybody tell me? Well, that's what I'll start doing tomorrow. It'll be a challenge tomorrow. There'll probably still be some frustration with guilt and fear. Man, aren't you glad Jesus passed the test for you? So let's grab a hold of his grace. Instead of running from his word, instead of running from his existence, let's run to him and let's run to his word. And if that continues to be an overwhelming, failure, guilt-ridden thing in your life, then ask God for some wisdom and guidance on how to get to some help somebody's maybe some professional help that can give you some good biblical guidance on how to fight this thing. But don't quit. Don't, don't exchange the frustration of failure for poison. Because you see, you're not just drinking the poison for you. Remember what we talked about last week? We're, we're a body. This is us. And when, boy, when it comes to sex, I, I, very private. That's just me. You don't know anything. Nobody in here has ever made a sexual decision that does not ultimately end up affecting everybody you love. Your children, your grandchildren, your friends. Folks, our sexuality in all of its privacy absolutely is a witness to everyone around us. Whether we're finding truth and value in God and His Word or we're finding truth and value in our feelings. What message do you want to give to the people you love? Let's pray. Boy, Lord, it's easy to hear this and agree. It's easy to sit in church with your word in our hands and, and agree. It's, it's, it's a battle out there. And Lord, for probably all of us on some level and at some time... This issue has, has, has filled us with a lot of guilt, a lot of failure. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness. And I, and I pray that that grace and that forgiveness motivates me to cling to your word. To cling to you. Not, not to take advantage of it. Not to not care. But to hold on to your word. God, help me, help us to want what you want. Truth, beauty, goodness, and purity. God, I want to I cooperate with you in what you're doing with, in my life. Not just cooperate with my body and its feelings. Help me. And Lord, help us help each other. 
And let us celebrate your yes that is always going to be good. Your no that is always going to be good for me, for the other, for our society. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.